Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. It would be unusual for me to associate astrophysics with romantic comedy, but Alan Mall does in his new play, The Weight of Everything We Know, a romantic comedy about the kilogram changing mass. In this episode, Alan talks about his approach to writing and researching a science-related rom-com, the structure of the play, the unexpected comfort that this genre offers in difficult times, and more. As a side note, Alan Mall and Ian Finley are part of one of the two Soapbox Audio Collective writing teams, and I couldn't be happier to be working with them on a new scripted audio fiction series. Alan Mall is a Durham-based playwright and writer with more than 12 years of writing experience for the stage and digital media. Favorite productions of his plays include Everscape at the New York City Fringe and Sonoris Road Theater, Too Late at the Carborough Arts Center 10x10 Festival, Tales and Fermentations with Seed Art Share, and Framing the Shot with Sonoris Road Theater. Alan also worked as a video game writer and voice director on the online RPG Fallen Earth and the serious games GE 2050 and Uptick. Alan is a graduate of Duke University and holds a master's in performance studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. If you would like to hear an online reading of The Weight of Everything We Know, please pop over to the Seed ArtShare website for information on how to connect. Please see the link in the show notes and seedartshare.org for more information. Currently, the play is scheduled to be read on May 9th at 7 p.m. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I'm so happy to be here. So you and I are both lucky because our children are in bed and asleep, and we get to talk about fun things like writing plays. Yes, indeed. I would like to talk about one of your recent scripts that you were so kind to send to me. The title of the play is The Weight of Everything We Know, and it is a romantic comedy, which is very refreshing to read at a moment like this. I'm curious, why did you decide to write a rom-com? Part of it is that uh, I had never written one before, so I wanted to try out a genre that I hadn't really spent much time in. And one of, it's hilarious. One of the first things I had to learn was uh, my good friend Ian Fenley, who's been on the podcast. When he was helping me with an early draft of the play, he had to... Uh, He's like, Alan, I'm going to draw you the typical structure of a romantic comedy. And it looks a little like an upside down Christmas tree. And so what it is, is like they, the two protagonists start apart, try to come together, then get driven apart, then they try to come together. And they it goes in the zigzag pattern until it reaches a point at the end where they're finally like, you know, there's the final kiss and the lights go down and everything. Everyone's happy. Mm-hmm. And uh, my structure in my early draft looked, looked a little bit more like an inverted triangle where they just kind of like got together and had some fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I don't know if I was trying to like compensate by making it happier than like whatever the was going on outside my window or on the internet. And that was the reason why I did that that way. But that was one of the big lessons I had to learn was uh, figuring out how to structure the thing. 
Well, I think, you know, or I imagine when we write characters that we want to get together, we sort of want art to imitate life. It's like, well, they all, they just get together and we just get to watch them be happy and delightful together. So why would we want to drive them apart? (laughs) Yeah. And the crazy thing was the early draft didn't, it wasn't like there was no conflict and it was all happy, but everything was outside of their relationship. And that was one of those things that that would work for other kinds of stories. But for a romantic comedy, you have to have that push and pull conflict. Otherwise, it's uh, not nearly as interesting for the audience to consume. If your original draft was more about the characters being driven apart by external events and you had to kind of look within the relationship to Mm -hmm. figure out how to push them apart, how did you come up with those things within the relationship? Was it driven by character? Yeah. So uh, when I was reexamining the conflict between the characters within within their relationship – what uh, what it took was exaggerating a lot of the things that made them different because the play is about a romance between an astrophysicist and a scruffy creative freelance writer. The inspiration for the entire overarching plot was that I read in the news like uh, about a year and a half ago that the International Academy of Science had decided, thanks to a scientific breakthrough, that they now could verify with mathematical precision the exact weight of the kilogram. Now, I read this story and I'm like, uh, so did we not know before? And they were like, mm-hmm. well, before it was based on this approximate weight. And it's there was a there's actually a platinum cast like kilogram in the Academy of Science in Paris that is the model for all kilograms in the world. But the problem with a physical weight is that if you scratch it or sneeze on it or something, then it gains a little bit of tiny mass or, and that can throw off measurements and they're just terrible for science and medicine, and everything else. And so I read this story and I'm like, so why does that matter to ordinary people? And the more I read into it, it like the scientists and physicists in my life are really excited about it and it meant nothing to me. So I was like, oh, I want to write a play about this because I'm fascinated by the idea that this universal game-changing thing has happened and it's meant pretty much nothing to lay people like myself. And the characters kind of emerged from the idea of like someone who whose entire career was based around like measuring like uh, bodies in space using the kilogram. And then she finds out like at the end of the first scene that all of all of her measurements for the last two years of her postdoc have been ruined because the kilogram's weight has now changed. And the guy that she's on the date with on the, in the opening scene is kind of like, so wait, what, how, why does that matter? And she has to run off and try to fix her research. And the entire second scene is him telling the audience everything that he Googled last night about the kilogram, trying to understand why this is so important. Was that you? Were you the person who Googled? Like, how did you do the research for this yeah, piece? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm like, you know, being a little too honest about the process with this. But yeah, it's like a lot of it is... You know, I have some friends who are like physicists who can give me advice about some of the things. And my wife is a mechanical engineer. So she was the one that actually helped me know like, okay, here's how it actually would affect her research and things like that. But a lot of it was frantically Googling everything I could about the change in the kilogram's mass, the history of the kilogram, why the kilogram is important to different things and a lot of like astrophysics terms. Yeah. So uh, it's easier to write one of those characters understanding of the kilogram than other than the other, because I can relate really heavily to the scruffy freelance writer trying to figure out why this is so important and not really getting it and trying to understand the astrophysicist has been a lot more of, I drew on like all of my friends that are uh, have PhDs or have recently gone through grad school in the hard sciences and just thinking about like, okay, 
all of the work that goes into researching your things, measuring things, gathering data, and then you have to be able to prove something. And it all comes down to like, can you prove this or not at the end? And if you can't, sometimes a lot of the work that you've done can be thrown out. Uh, We've got a good family friend that used to work with my spouse and he is a all but dissertation astrophysicist in the sense that he got all the way to the end of his research and then he was unable to actually prove the thing that he had theorized because it just wasn't the way that he had planned. And his advisor was like, I'm sorry, you have to go back to the drawing board and start all over again. And he was like, you know, I'm not sure if this PhD thing is for me. And so he ended up changing careers because of that whole thing happening. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of that was how I drew on it was just talk, thinking about like what it's like to have a lot of your life work going forward, you're doing all these things. And then suddenly this huge game changing thing happens that alters everything that you've done. And you had absolutely zero control over it. And that was a lot of the inspiration for Lucia, the astrophysicist character. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question that seems, (laughs) I feel kind of silly asking this question and it, it seems like it might be kind of boring, but I'm sincerely interested. Mm -hmm. So how did you practically speaking, do the research for this play? It's very sciencey and you handle it so I think very elegantly and it doesn't seem cumbersome at all. Like it doesn't slow down the momentum of the piece at all. So did you have a Google doc where you just took notes or how did you translate? And here's, here's what's under this question. Okay. I find sometimes when I'm researching something, I get wrapped up in the research and then I get bored with the story. Like I can't translate the research to dramatic action. You know what I mean? So that's like 10 questions, but that's kind of where I'm going with this. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you so much for all your kind words on this one. It's a play that I haven't really shown to that many people yet. So it's really encouraging to hear that it's uh, resonating with somebody that I respect as much as you. And so, yes, you did accurately describe it. I have a big old like doc filled with notes. And a lot of what I relied on for this is the nice thing about writing in the 21st century is that you can it's very is that when a big story like this happens, you can count on multiple podcasts, um, websites and and uh, all kinds of different Internet content of experts and journalists weighing in on what happened, who's involved, why does this matter, what's the history of the whole thing and everything else. And, uh, and, and also just having a few friends that I can occasionally show something to and they're like, yeah, this is not exactly how this would work or she wouldn't talk about it this way. I will say to the layperson, it seemed totally legit to me. So <laughs> that's the, it's one of those ones where whenever I whenever I want want to write something with uh, you know real world connections and real life facts behind it, I I'm primarily writing for people like me that are you know want to just hear a good story and be engaged by it. But I just want it to be truthful enough that someone would look at it and be like, "This is simple but correct." <laughs> Right, right. Well, we can't be experts about everything. And it sounds like you do have experts in your life that you can kind of run things by so it doesn't so it's not wildly incorrect. And it might inspire people who are not astrophysicists to investigate and to see the relevance that other topics might have on their lives. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know anything about this, but it is an intriguing idea. Yeah. And one of the craziest parts about the kilogram changing is I didn't even touch on the idea of like the thing that I was blown away by was it matters a ton for medicine. Like it's the sort of thing where whenever if you ever, you know, get a drug from a pharmacist, the kilogram has been messed up in 
if they, so they have done an approximation for the whole thing. They measure those drugs down to such minute amounts that this is going to be a big public health help. The fact that they can now use Planck's constant to mathematically know exactly what the proper weight is of a uh, different drug component. So that's one thing that doesn't even really show up in the script, but I thought was like incredibly eye-opening. That's wonderful. Yeah. Now, Alan, you are you are a writer by day and by evening yeah. because you are a writer for branding and content marketing as well as a playwright. Yes. What is it like to write for so much of your life? What are the pros and cons, I, I should say? Oh, well, the pros are I feel like I get I get to practice writing as an art form, even when I'm not being very creative with it. Because even on the days where I do not touch a play script, I am constantly thinking about, you know, what's the right verb to use here? What are the, What's the right like a uh, language that I want to put into this thing to kind of ignite the emotions of, you know, the engineer or salesperson that is reading this uh, technology copy that I'm writing. So that's one good thing about it is I get to constantly practice my craft, even when it's not in the fun, creative stuff that I'd like to be working on. The downside is that sometimes when my, you know, the career that brings in the most money is going well, it takes away more and more of my time that I'd like to be using on playwriting or writing audio drama or plain and simple, just like, you know, screwing around with new ideas and writing treatments for things that I may or may not write one day. And uh, mm-hmm. that's, it's, it's one of those ones where uh, just figuring out like the limitations of my time and what I have to deal with, because since the last time we, we met on this podcast, I am a parent, which I absolutely love. But one of the biggest things I've realized is, wow, this little person is very dependent on me and needs a lot of my time and energy. And if I, you know, it's like, that's going to take more, more of the time I would away that I would have spent on working on a play script or whatever else. And it's a joyful loss, but still something that I have to change and, and make work if I want to continue to uh, do as well as I can as an artist while also being the best parent that I can be. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to kind of choose how you're going to spend your time and, and be very deliberate about those choices. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, just like, I've been thinking about limitations a lot and just kind of the, they can be empowering in a way because they get you to focus really hard with the time that you do have. Like, mm-hmm. When I was uh, my first career was I worked in video game development. And I remember talking to a guy that had been in that business like about 10 years longer than me. And he was saying how, yeah, these big budget games now take about five or six years from concept to release. And I'm the guy was about 40 and he goes like, so I've probably got maybe four of these left before I retire. I'm just thinking to myself, like, wow, you you won't live forever. You you only have so many projects you can do, especially big ones that take a lot of time. And I think, like, as a young creative, I was like, oh, wow, I uh, all those ideas I've been writing down, I literally won't get to all of them. So how do you decide which ones to pursue? <sighs> I think a lot of it is just, like, it's whatever feels relevant to the moment I'm in. Like, uh this kilogram one was one that like, I'm fortunate that when I got the idea, I was able to write down an outline and a bunch of notes and dive into script writing and everything on this one. And it actually more or less went in a straight line. I had to take some time off when like, uh, right when Isaac was born to like, you know, focus mostly on being a parent. So there wasn't as much development happening then, obviously, but in this one was, I was pretty fortunate that it, it just kept moving in a straight line. I mean, other plays of mine, like Everscape, like, I began writing that one in 
2010 and I kept like writing a scene there and a scene here. And then whenever I would get inspired, I'd, ch- I'd chunk away and write a bit more. And then it wasn't until I think uh, fall of 2013 where I actually had a reading of the play and like was able to like show it to all these people. This thing that I had been working on on and off for like about three years before that. And do you think that this one was a little bit more straightforward because of the story or because you've just gotten faster? Like, what do you think was the difference? I think part of it is I've gotten more experienced as a writer, which is not me pounding my chest and saying how great I've become, but more like when I start getting stuck or I start wondering like uh, what's going to happen next Whenever I get off the path, I know how to find the path again faster because I've been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. This gets back to the idea of how even when I have to take a break from playwriting for a week or two because I've been doing all this freelance work for marketing, even then it's like it keeps those writing muscles alive. Like I'm not getting the chance to work on as many creative storytelling things, but I am still working with like sentence structure, verb tense, trying to figure out how to tell a very efficient story about something technology related. So I'm still working on it all the time. And I think that experience has helped me be able to stay focused a little bit better on my creative work. So it sounds like you start with an outline and some notes, and then I'm imagining that you start writing based on your outline. When you get to a place where you get stuck or the words aren't flowing, do you skip to the next part of your outline? Like how do you handle those bumps? Sometimes I sometimes I skip ahead. More often than not, I take a break from the writing and try to get my head in a different space. And if I can tell that something's not working and I'm not likely to figure it out anytime soon, I'm totally fine with walking away from it and being able to go for a walk, like just go to sleep, eat a meal, do something that like uh, gets me in a different headspace and knowing that I can come back to it later. Because I know that my brain is storytelling brain is still working on the solution to the problem, even when I can't quite find the words when I'm sitting at my computer. And so I'm confident enough that I can get back to it. And the next time I take a crack at it, after I've had a good night's sleep, after I've had food, then I'm often able to like work through the problem or at least keep the story going enough that I can revise it again later. And do you hear your characters' voices? Like, how do they speak to you? Because I think that dialogue is really, it's really snappy. It's really witty. Where does that come from? Well, part of it's just doing my best to listen to the other people in my life that I think are really brilliant and funny and like things about the <laughs> kinds of things that they would say. Because uh, that's that's a lot of it. I think I got into playwriting because I loved writing character dialogue so much. And so like, it's the kind of thing where I usually hear how a character talks and the sort of sentences the sort of sentence structure they adopt, like are they the kind of person that likes the sound of their own voice? Do they like to gush and go on for a while? Like the writer guy, Darrow in my script is definitely fond of like, he's, he's fond of uh, whenever someone asks him about a subject that he knows at least a little bit about just kind of going on and on. He's good enough at improv that he can keep the, uh, he can keep a speech moving even when he isn't quite sure what the next sentence is going to be. And it was a nice contrast to write the other character, Lucia, the astrophysicist, because she is very much a planner, the kind of person that just wants to know exactly how she's going to execute on something. And, making a plan, doing her research, and then like having it all be precise and perfect and done exactly the way that she had envisioned. And that uh, different, the difference in approach with the two of them and how they like to communicate has been a really fun way to uh, get into those two characters in the play. Since you sent your romantic comedy, I've been thinking a little bit about that. And 
I'm going to say, and right now in this moment, I believe it's true, but I don't know if I always believe it, that it is true, that it takes some guts to write a romantic comedy. Because I think that in this specific moment, but generally, there's a sort of jaded attitude towards yeah. plays and all kind of art, really. And it's like, it seems sort of old timey to have a, a rom-com, you know? I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Do you agree, disagree? I can totally see where you're coming from because I have enough, I read enough news and follow enough things on the world that I'm like, you know, it's like we're dealing with climate change. And right now, as we record this, all of us are uh, socially distancing from our loved ones that aren't in our house because of a coronavirus outbreak. And there's a sense of uh, gravitas and the need that we need to, you know, have art that's serious enough to tackle this moment. And I understand that. I totally can believe it. But at the same time, it's like I was reading a really encouraging thing online from another playwright who was saying how She's like, if you look back at the kind of work that people did during other really dire times in recent history, there was serious stuff, but there was also a lot of fun things. Like if you think about like the depression and World War II, it's like we uh, got an awful lot of like, you know, musical comedies. We got a lot of like, you know, it's like light kind of plays, these romance stories, these uh, funny movies and stuff like that. And we also yeah. got we also got Bertolt Brecht, you know, who is arguably the playwright of the 20th century, especially if you're a European loving person. But like, it was kind of funny. It's like I was thinking about that about Brecht recently, and I was looking at like uh, just cracked open like uh, I think it was Mother Courage and her children, and, and like I had forgotten like even in the opening scene of a Brecht play, it's like there's a, there's dirty jokes, there's a song, there's lots of like coarse humor, and like just like he's really really sarcastic and sardonic. But he even when he's trying to get the audience to take seriously what he's writing about, there's a lot of things to engage them on an on a emotional level at the same time they want it's like i mean learning that you could have kind of you could have laughter in the theater that also implicated the audience at the same time was one of the coolest things i remember learning about brecht's writing and i don't want to make this a whole podcast about bertal brecht but it's like there's room for entertainment and emotional engagement and just telling a story that is satisfying on all of those levels that also has a serious point i mean and in the kilogram play, one of the big like plot hooks is that you find out that uh, Lucia, the astrophysicist, is uh, not an American citizen. And writing in the uh, Trump era, it was this thinking about like, oh no, this is a person whose visa could be revoked at any time because you know if she's not the kind of person they want here, then that's not. It's like it would be incredibly difficult for her to remain in the country and. I don't want to say that like uh, that was me trying to make a serious point about immigration, but that was me at least trying to acknowledge that there's a wider, more difficult world out there than just the um, witty dialogue and repartee of these two characters that I really enjoy writing. And most of us, if we are lucky, we have lives that are full of a variety of emotions, right? Yes. So we can we can laugh and we can fall in love and we can be serious and we can grieve and we can have, you know, all sorts of things happen in our lives. And so I think that it is even rom-coms are a reflection of the lives that we at least aspire to live at some point, you know. Yeah, 100%. And I mean like uh, if you're, if you're if we're going to talk about I mean r romance and love and relationships or something that um essentially all of us get like deal with on some level. And I think um, I always use comedy as my way into a story, even when I'm talking about very serious subject matter, because I like to use 
laughter as a way to constantly help with the levity and also just to make the audience feel more comfortable with feeling, you know, I get embarrassed sometimes, but it's like, I have a hard time watching serious films and serious plays sometimes. Like if it's one that I've read before and I'm like, Oh, this is going to be a tough one. I sometimes will like, you know, just like have to, I have to kind of like gear myself up to go see it. Whereas if it's a play that I, no has a lot of like comedic elements to it. I won't worry nearly as much about if the subject matter is serious or not, because I know that the laughter is going to help me better engage with it in a way that's um, going to be easier on my soul. If that makes sense. Absolutely. 100%. And this is a side note, but I found that since I've become a parent, my tolerance for like tragedy in art has gone way down. Oh like gosh. I can't stomach it. I just can't. And so if it's, I need a little bit of laughter or I, I can't really be fully present. You know, it's just too much. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a, becoming a parent has just kicked my already empathetic nature into overdrive. I mean, if like if I remember reading a story and like something bad happens to like someone's family, all I can think about is like, Oh no, he was somebody's child and this is all that <laughs> happened. And yeah, it might even just be like a throwaway, like thirty second moment that someone mentions, and I have to like stop and pro- like you know pause whatever I'm watching to kind of process it before I can go back in. <laughs> yes, um, Alan, is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap up? I guess um, the only other thing I'd really like to talk about is to encourage everybody to do everything you can to connect with the people in your life. Like if you're if you don't have somebody at home that you can spend time with regularly, please like I mean FaceTime someone call them, like do everything you can just to connect with people right now. I think the most touching thing about all the tough times we're going through with the social distancing has been reconnecting with a lot of my friends that had never taken the time to FaceTime or call me before, or at least not in over a year. And it's been really nice to be able to be reminded that we're all together in this and not just swim, swimming upstream by ourselves. Yes, that's wonderful advice. I actually had a Zoom call with some friends from college the other night and we haven't seen each other in, oh gosh, it's been a long time. It was Mm -hmm. wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for the conversation and for the writing you do. I appreciate you. If anyone's interested, we are going to attempt a Zoom live reading of The Weight of Everything We Know, my new romantic comedy about the kilogram on May 9th, and it will probably be around 7 p.m., but I will uh, be sure to send along the uh, Zoom link and everyone to everyone that's listening to this so they can uh, get the details, and I'd be delighted to hear what everybody thinks. Wonderful. Thanks, Alan. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Please see our website, artistsoapbox.org, for more information. 